let's start a new book today, okay? Um, we have spent most of the summer uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes. Remember that? Okay. Then we did four messages on spiritual disciplines. Okay. And um, through, you, you go, hey, how does a pastor decide what the next book should be? And um, really, just through prayer and through study and through, I, I actually was ready to, to go into Ephesians, and now we're going to do Ruth, okay? Um, but not so fast. Before we jump into Ruth, Ruth is a little four-chapter book that tells of uh, the story of two very godly, faithful people, um, but they were living in a time when Israel had fallen into extreme depravity during the time of the judges. So Ruth actually begins with these words, in the days when the judges ruled. So before we actually delve into Ruth, um, I think we're going to spend some time not going verse by verse through uh, the book of Judges, but we're going to do kind of an overview of the book of Judges. All right, so uh, look at this. Ruth is nice, and there's a nice little wheat field there. Judges is kind of a blood-spattered mess, all right? In fact, the book of Judges ends with this verse, and this is kind of a reoccurring verse that you see throughout. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And boy, that sure describes the day and age we live in. Everybody does what is right in their own eyes. You can identify however you want to identify because there's no right or wrong. Um, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of leadership anywhere. Okay, It's a time of confusion, but this is nothing new. The book of Judges describes a very similar time. Um, there's this guy, well in fact let, let me show you where, where we're at in the history of the Old Testament. Uh, the storyline of the Old Testament is rather simple. God creates the world, and then he chooses a guy named Abraham, and through Abraham he says, I'm going to create a nation, and then through you is going to come a deliverer. And uh, the book of Genesis is about creation and the patriarchs, Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob, and then the 12 tribes. and then uh, So that, those are the patriarchs. And then... Uh, the people of Israel go into slavery down in Egypt. And the book of Exodus then is the story of God delivering the people of Israel uh, from slavery in Egypt. And then Joshua leads them into the promised land. That's called the conquest. When they, uh, they conquered the land of Israel, but they didn't conquer all of it. And then we lead into the book of Judges, which is a time of depravity. 
a time of great sin, and even the heroes were pretty depraved. All right? So uh, they need a king. Then we, we read about God giving them kings, and guess what? The kings are not that much better than the judges. Things get so bad that Israel has to go into exile into Babylon. They do return, and then it's kind of blah for 400 years. And then Jesus shows up. All right? So there's the, the timeline for the Old Testament, but we're going to zero in to the time of the judges. And the time of the judges is also when the book of Ruth takes place. Now, um, if I've ever mentioned this guy Piper, he says this about the book of Ruth. He says it's a story for people who wonder where God is when there are no dreams or visions or prophets. It's for people who wonder where God is when one tragedy after another attacks their faith. It's a story for people who wonder whether a life of integrity in tough times is worth it. And it's a story for people who can't imagine that anything great could ever come out of their ordinary lives of faith. So if we're living in a time similar to the time of the judges, and here's, here's where we're headed, Maybe our heroes shouldn't be spectacular leaders like Gideon or Samson who had spectacular victories, but they were also spectacular failures. But maybe our heroes should be quiet, unknown people like Ruth and Boaz. All right, so, so that's kind of the setup we're going to we're going to uh, do an overview of Judges for several weeks, and then we're going to look at Ruth. Okay? Now, um, for those of you familiar with the Bible Project, um, it's little, uh, little videos that they do uh, giving overviews of various books of the Bible. And here's, here's their, their picture. I'm not going to play the video, but the picture of the book of Judges. The people of Israel fall into sin. They worship the idols in the land. And God allows oppressors to rise up and oppress them. And then they, they repent, but it's really not true repentance. It's relieve my pain repentance. So God raises up a deliverer, a, a judge. There's a time of peace, and guess what? They fall right back into idol worship and slavery and it spirals downward it gets worse and worse and worse and even the judges go from good to okay to not so okay to really bad all right so that's the the overview uh of the of the whole book now in the middle of chapter two there is this very troubling verse all right and Joshua, the son of Nun, that doesn't mean he didn't have any parents. It meant his last name was Nun, right? So Joshua Nun, <laughs> the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. So they were the faithful generation, right? They were the ones who uh, entered the land, they overtook 
Jericho and the other cities, and then they all die out. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And you go, how can, how can you go from one generation that's faithful and knows the Lord to the next generation that just forgets it all? And uh, all I would say is, I've witnessed it. I see it happening. Just some interesting stats here. The fastest growing religious group in America are the nuns. I don't mean nuns in habits. Okay, or the nuns, Joshua Nun. Okay, but the N-O-N-E-S, the those who have zero religious affiliation. At least you ask some people, what you know, what are you? They say Catholic or uh, Episcopalian. They go zero, nothing. I'm nothing. That's the largest growing segment. Um, if unchurched Americans were their own nation, they'd be the eighth largest nation on earth. About 156 million. United States adults and children are churchless. Now, that's a different group than the nuns, but these are people who you say, well, what, what are you? Well, I was raised Catholic or I was raised Baptist. Where, do you go now? Not really. That's half of America. 59%, basically 60% of millennials who were raised in the church have stopped attending. You go, what in the world is happening? Well, um, the same thing that happened to Israel. There's a slippery slope of things that happen. And here's, what, here's, here's the, the three-point sermon outline for today. It starts with insubordination or disobedience. It slides to accommodation where you go, ah, things, you know, let's just, let's just kind of blend into the surrounding nations. And then infatuation with the idols. All right, that's the three-step slippery slope to where, where Israel once slid and to where we are, I believe, today. So let's first of all talk about insubordination um, that's another word for disobedience or let's put it this way partial obedience okay so God delivers the people of Israel from Egypt he tells them go in and conquer the land they start off doing well but then in chapter 1 of Judges, we read this. The tribe of Judah could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethsheen. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. Zebulon did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. All right? Now, you might think God would say, well, you did your best, right? I mean, it's war, it's hard, you tried, you gave it your best shot. It's, 
it's, it's all anybody could ask. I mean, after all, they had iron chariots. They had stealth bombers, and you're just a ragtag bunch of soldiers. Right? But that is not what God says. Here's how God looks at it. Now, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Not, hey, good try, you gave it your... You didn't obey. You were to clear out the land, and you only did half the job. What is this you've done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be snares to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. But what we're going to find out is it's not a weeping of repentance. It's a weeping of, oh, I got caught and I got spanked. Okay. Now, um, how could God expect them to defeat superior armies with iron chariots? Well, reread verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land. The deliverance from, from Egypt was a miracle. Going through the Red Sea was a miracle. Living for 40 years in the desert with no food was a miracle. Destroying Jericho was a miracle. Just keep going. Just keep trusting God. God's upset with them because they stopped obeying and trusting Him. Okay? You know, um, this is very similar to what God says to the first king, Saul. Saul was supposed to um, destroy the Amalekites. Wipe them out. Not, not leave anybody, even the cattle, and uh, what Saul does is, well, let me show you. Hmm. There we go. So, so he attacks the Amalekites. He saves the livestock. And he keeps the king. He doesn't kill the king. And Samuel the prophet shows up and Saul says to him, blessed be, you to, uh, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, what then is this bleating of sheep in my ears and this lowing of oxen that I hear? What, what is this greeting? I've performed the commandment of the Lord. No, you haven't. All the livestock are still here and the king he's still alive and Saul wants to kind of go on and argue well I've, I've I've done a pretty good job by the way little uh little side note here that some of you are 
may be disturbed by. What is this God telling people to go into a land and wipe them out? And telling Saul to destroy an entire people, including the king and, the, and uh, everybody. Is, is that genocide? Well, here's a, a, couple of, a couple of points. One, it wasn't genocide, it was idolicide. Okay? Those who wanted to stop their idolatry and join Israel could. In fact, people like Rahab, the prostitute, she did just that. She left Jericho and became a part of Israel and ultimately became the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of who? Jesus, right? So you could forsake your idolatry and join up with the true God. All right. Second point is this. The book of Joshua, the book of, of Judges, the conquest of the land is a historical book. It's description, it's not prescription. In other words, you're not supposed to read it and go, oh, let's go wipe out the Genevans. Okay? Um, it is describing what God told the Israelites to do. It's not prescribing us to do this. No Christian can claim God told me to rally my church to go uh, commit genocide on some other nation. All right? This was a unique historical time when God said, I'm going to use one people to destroy another people for their idolatry. And God has the prerogative of doing that. He even did it with Israel. He brought in other nations to punish Israel. Okay? So, you go, what's going on here? Unique, historical, descriptive, not prescriptive time. So, um, Saul does not totally wipe out uh, the Amalekites. All right? So then... Uh, Saul says to Samuel, so Sam, Samuel calls him on it. What's this bleeding of sheep? Uh, Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission in which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. I mean, he even, in his saying, I did obey, points out that he didn't kill the king. What's going on here? But the people, the others, took of the spoil sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to, to, to sacrifice to, to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Right? I did obey. Oh, and the people, they didn't, wanna, they didn't want me to kill the animals. And, and, and they, they did that to, to worship you. Look at all the excuses. He's giving. Does Samuel then go, oh, oh, okay, thanks for the explanation. No, he says, for rebellion is as the sin of divination. What you've done in your partial obedience, Saul, is no different than if you went to a medium, to a witch, and uh, wanted her to tell you the future, which he does later on in the book. Right? And presumption... Okay, you've got to be pretty presumptuous to say, yeah, I know God said A, 
but I'm only going to do part of A. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. So then he weeps and he cries. It looks like repentance. But then he goes up to Samuel and it says, then he said, I have sinned. But then look what he says. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. I'm going to look really bad. So so look at this. It's weeping. It's partial repentance. It's partial obedience, but lots of excuses, lots of man-pleasing going on here. Now, what's the point? God is a gracious God. God is a forgiving God. God is a compassionate God. We're going to have communion in a moment. He is a God of forgiveness. Okay, But sometimes God needs to call us out for falling into softness, compromise, taking the pathway of least resistance. Yes, God forgives true repentance, but he calls blame shifting and justifying and hypocrisy what it is, disobedience. So the first slip down the slippery slope is partial obedience. The next thing is accommodation. Right? Well, I know you called us to obey, but we, we, did, we, we did 90% of the job. Right? And now that we've left these other people and their idols here, you know, they're not so bad. Accommodation. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Prezites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites. I always like to throw in the mosquito bites. Right? And their daughters they took to themselves for wives. And their own daughters they gave to their sons. And they served their gods. They went from being appalled at idolatry. By the way, their idol worship involved prostitution. So when you went to church... At the Canaanite church, you had sex. Right? And it involved child sacrifice. So when you read this, you go, well, you know, maybe, maybe it's good. They should have just, you know, let live and let live. If you want to go to the Canaanite church, great. No. This should have been appalling, but they said, ah, let's let them live and let's intermarry with these people. All right? Accommodation. So just a uh, little check here. Have we become accustomed to child sacrifice in our culture? Have we become accustomed to the pornographic nature of our culture? Is, Is what used to be appalling now something that we've just kind of accommodated ourselves to. 
Now, I, I don't think we should be prudes, okay? But I do think the more we accommodate our hearts to the culture, the more God's glory fades in our hearts. Right? The more we accommodate ourselves to the culture, the more God's glory fades. By the way, the, the Hebrew word for, uh, for glory contains the idea of heaviness, of weightiness. Seeing the glory of God is to give God the weight He deserves. Okay? Jesus spoke about what it's going to be like when He returns. And people are going to be caught off guard. And look at why they're going to be caught off guard. Luke 17. Just as it was in the days of Noah so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. What do you mean? Well, they were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. Notice the sin here is not wickedness, even though because of wickedness God flooded the earth and because of wickedness God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. The sin here is just living life without giving God the weight that He deserves. My concern with our culture and with the church being influenced by the culture is that we can just let life itself work, buying, selling, eating, being foodies, shopping. We can let life itself become the purpose of life so much so that God is of no weight at all. Guard yourself from letting life become more important than God. Right. Now, the last thing that happens is infatuation. Okay. They've, they've given into accommodation where they've tolerated the idolatry. But now look what it says. Yet, so God raises up judges. The judges deliver them. Yet, they did not listen to their judges. For they hoard after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, Joshua, 
who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. You know, Pastor Brian, you shouldn't use language like that in church. I'm just reading the text. Okay. Interesting word. It's not just that they accommodated the idols. They whored after the idols. They love these idols. Now, remember, the, the original question is this, is this how, did, how did they go from one generation knowing and loving the Lord to the next generation giving no weight to the Lord? Well, part of it is this. One generation cannot fake heart satisfaction to the next generation. You can't fake what you're truly satisfied with. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Remember we talked about the glory of God being his, his weight, His heaviness. He is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. Do you know how we communicate true satisfaction in God to the next generation? By being actually satisfied in Him. And the next generation watching us knows whether we're truly satisfied in God or whether it's really in our job, Netflix, sports, politics. Right? They can tell the difference between just going to church and doing our duty and truly being deeply satisfied in God. So here's the challenge as the culture is rolling down the hill. Are you deeply satisfied in Christ? Don't quit until Christ truly is your deepest satisfaction in your heart. Anything less is just legalism. And my preaching is just nagging. Right? Ruth and Boaz were people deeply satisfied in God in the midst of people who weren't. So, let me close with this. You go, how do I get there? Well, we already covered it. We talked about these spiritual disciplines, and one of the disciplines is making time to open that book and meditate on that book. George Mueller, who's he? He's that guy over in England who, in the 1800s, God moved him to start a bunch of orphanages. And he never asked for money. 
If ever there was a need, he would just pray about it and money would come in. And he became kind of a legend in his own time. And uh, people asked him, what's your secret? You're clearly a, a man on fire for God and, and God is using you. What's your secret? So he, he wrote a book about his spiritual secret. Okay, He said this, According to my judgment, the most important point to be attended to is this. Above all things, see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. Other things may press upon you. The Lord's work may even have urgent claims upon your attention, but I deliberately repeat it is of supreme and paramount importance that you should seek above all things to have your souls truly happy in God Himself. Day by day, seek to make this the most important business of your life. Day by day, seek to make this the most important business of your life. This has been my firm and settled condition for the last five and thirty years. For the first four years after my conversion, I knew not its vast importance, but now after much experience, I specially commend this point to the notice of my younger brethren and sisters in Christ. The secret of all true effectual service is joy in God, having fellowship with God Himself. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we do not want to be like the people in the time of the judges. Everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. Not giving you the weight that is due your glory. Lord, I pray for our culture. I pray for the church in America. I pray for Valley Brook. I pray for myself. I pray for, uh, for those we, we come in contact with. Um, Lord, may we truly be deeply satisfied in you. May we not be influenced by the culture that just pays no heed to you. Maybe, maybe they go to church but you're not heavy. So Lord, do your work in our hearts. Move us to seek you daily, as George Mueller said. And then, and then Lord, do miracles. We pray for the next generation, Lord, that they too would not be blinded by the culture but they would run after you and find deep satisfaction in you and you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.